Oh, welcome to the Emergent Human. We're explore optimizing health, embodied spirituality, and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. One of the three pillars of the Emergent Human podcast is optimizing health. Part of my own process in doing so is being a member of an organization known as Life Force. I joined Life Force after reading the book Life Force by Tony Robbins and Peter Diamandis in order to get the support I needed to take my health to its next level. I'm happy to announce that Life Force is now a show sponsor. Life Force membership provides you with at-home diagnostics, access to functional medicine doctors, health coaches, advanced nutraceuticals, hormones, and peptides. Life Force creates a customized plan tailored to your goals and blood work results to help you optimize your health. Their diagnostic is one of the most affordable, convenient, and comprehensive blood tests out there. If you've been looking for a more personalized approach to improve your health in the new year, check them out at lifeforce.com. And use the code EMERGENTHUMAN15 for 15% off your first purchase. I'd like to welcome back Max Borders, a futurist, author, and speaker who lives in Austin, Texas. His books include After Collapse, The End of America, and the Rebirth of Her Ideals, The Social Singularity, How Decentralization Will Allow Us to Transcend, transcend Politics, Create Global Prosperity, and Avoid Robotic Apocalypse, and The Decentralist, Missions, Morality, and meaning in the age of crypto. Max, great to see you, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be back. It's been way, way too long. Uh, <laughs> a lot, lot's happened in this, in this area, in this time that we haven't spoken. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to kind of get a sense of like what you've been up to, what you're thinking about, what you see as possibilities in the future. Um, but before we kind of go down those paths, um, for the listening audience who doesn't know Max, tell us a little bit like, what is a futurist? How did you become a futurist? What what what's the path that led you to the work that you do, an author, a speaker, et cetera, et cetera? Well, and <clears throat> I, uh, you know, you know, I sometimes jokingly say uh, it, it's 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 tough to hang the 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 hang the the word futurist on oneself because, as you well know, there's a there's a if there if there are just fifty futurists out there you know the it's it's really hard to stake out your territory um it's sort of like uh um the 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 as, as you as you put it before we came on how many shamans are there in in on austin right? <laughs> there there's more shamans than there are people in the market for a shaman <laughs> nevertheless um joking joking is I, I do take the futurist moniker rather seriously in in the following respects i think there are two basic types of futurists and i think you're going to be familiar with these particularly as you're you're uh, uh you know <clears throat> you you've got you, you know Peter Diamandis, for example, were, you know, operating in um, in the similar space. There's clearly overlap. These guys are, you know, uh, uh, the show. This is the kind, you know, Diamandis comes out of the Ray Kurzweil sort of singularitarian tradition, the X Prize. So if you take those two guys, let's take let's take Diamandis and Kurzweil as two two popular examples, and I and I. I really appreciate the kind of things that these guys have done in their lives, but there are two different types of types of future. There's significant overlap, but I but I would say uh, Kurzweil is one who is, I would say, primarily um, investigates the future the future way of forecast. 
he uses different sort of models, mental models and uh, calculations. For example, you know, there's the famous uh, you know, argu argument about when the machines will wake up that, you know, around the year 2000, slightly before he was starting to postulate based on Moore's law, the idea that, you know, there's going to be this doubling of computing power every 18 months. And since you calculate into the future with those kind of trends as you see them, that's the kind of futurist who looks at trends and does these kind of predictive evaluations based on those. And I, and I, you have to take a leaf, take a leaf from, um, to some degree and, and try to identify trends, patterns. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. that. And, and to some degree, these folks are cottage, cottage industry and better than others. Kurzweil is quite good and he's quite good. And he, he's been, you know, you know, I get him a standpoint of being off the mark in terms of the technology's progress. It ain't bad. I mean, we have to acknowledge the advance of AI, AI we acknowledge the advance of computing power, you know, even if he's off by 20 years, my gosh, the kind of things that he's predicted have been pretty, pretty awesome, right? So that's one area. The other area is, uh, are those who employ creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship in the service of creating the future, okay? Okay. Um, there's an old uh, Alan Kay who Kay who was was uh, uh, one of the early Xerox developers who developed the windowing GUI. I think the GUI general user interface for computers. And I'm not a I'm not I'm not a computer. So I'm I'm not talking about my talking about my I'm not talking out of my behind. I just read a, about him, you know. But Alan Kay is this famous guy comes out of Silicon Valley early on Xerox Park. He creates this and he has this sense of saying the best way to predict the future is to invent it, right? So the application of create creativity, entrepreneurship, innovation with respect to making some sort of cultural, social, technological technology is another way to be a futurist. I think the sweet spot is in the, the Venn diagram circles that overlapped right there in the middle. And, and I try that to some degree. I'm much more a theorist than I am, say, um, one dedicated to, uh, I guess, hyper empiricism, uh, evaluating data, getting data. And so I can do a little bit of that, but there are finer minds in that department. I respect it. I admire it. I get it where I can. But I do have to rely to some degree on uh, the the empiricist minds and in, in-source in source that I'm thinking and, and have a lot of faith, faith in the kind of work that they're doing. But suffice it to say, when you blend that that level of theory and praxis, um, you can also find find another sweet spot in terms of prediction and forecast, as well as imagining possibles. And it's really in that second that second area that I thrive, although it needs to needs to be informed by by that former state or that former Venn diagram circle. So. To put a period at the end of this very long paragraph, I would say a futurist is has is has to be of those things, but I am really dedicated to doing trying to do impossible things. And this is kind of where I disagree with uh uh Peter Dennis a little bit. You know, his 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 dick uh, or his one of his pot things has been 10x thinking. It, which is to say, try to imagine the world much in the manner of the way Elon sees it, which is giant earth-moving projects. Mm -hmm. I tend to be more like, okay, let's develop a set of 
tweaks, catalysts, protocols at the local level and see if, and see if those killed up and the way they scale might be far more organic than say planned and a rationalistic scheme. Uh, but that, but both things are possible. You know, uh, the Elon Musk of the world, of the world can have a vision for how say Tesla or SpaceX is going to unfold as companies and I'm more uh, kind of like like a moralist at, in, in the way I think, I think. And so um, I try to apply creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation in some of the most difficult areas, such as uh, how we constitute our human systems, whether that's inside an organization or or the wider extended order. I'm really interested in how human beings or beings organize and what that means to us, our internal states and how we develop our internal states. So for example, the decentralist is much more an inward looking, looking book, how we understand our, our, understand our, our, our personal mission, life, life, meaning, develop life, meaning, um, morality, why having a, a, a moral practice is, is vital, our, uh, to our condition and the way we show up in the world and has m these massive macro effects on other people, but also then the systems type stuff like the social, the social singular, uh, the social singularity being the, the first in the series that you mentioned where I'm thinking at the level of s protocols and systems. And that's um, both things require us to, to think in terms of um, um Marginalism, how things can expand like a slime mold rather than than uh, uh, understanding some some complicated but not necessarily complex system from from the outset in the way that an entrepreneurial founder might for a big company. So before we kind of jump into kind of those ways you see the world and operate the world and, and work on the world, I'm, I'm really curious, like, oh, OK, give me some examples of some of the work that you yeah. do do. But before we get there, I have two questions. You know, one was crossed my mind was like, oh, I'm sure he didn't go to the future school to learn how to think this way. Okay. So like, how did you learn to think this way? And when did this type of thinking show up for you? Because I would imagine there's innate in you to some degree. And then like you found the right mentors and programs and education to help kind of bring it out. That's my guess. But I'm really curious. Like, okay. Tell me that's, about a, that's, that. a, that's a great question. I'll try to see if I can encapsulate it quickly. Um, Initially, I mean, I have a philosophy background and my, the two areas of focus and philosophy for me were uh, philosophy of mind and political philosophy. Okay. In the philosophy of mind, mind, try to understand the relationship between mental states like consciousness and physical substrate in the world. And some people disagree, agree that the physics is the substrate, but I happen to believe that, believe that. <laughs> Um, there are people who, who invert that, they, oh, everything is consciousness all the way down and we're in simulation and this kind of stuff and panpsychism and all these very, what I, what I think are interest, interesting, and, and it's important to, to, to try to entertain those views and try them on, but I remain, uh, more or less a physicalist despite, uh, a profound relationship with conscious, conscious experience. Um, so we can go into turtles all the way down. There's not turtles all the way down, um, <laughs> nor, and, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's consciousness all the way down either. That being said, uh, the emerge consciousness, 
from from physical world is a deeply interesting and full phenomenon for me and it inspires awe and wonder um and that is is something that that can can in more than intellectual ways um as you probably are are aware of so i am deeply interested in that piece of things but specifically specifically from an ethical standpoint you asked the question how did you there's no future school. How did you get into it? So I had this philosophy background, trying to understand the relationship between mind and mind and body or the mental and the physical properties of the world. And then, and then I work sort of out of, out of grad school and uh, a couple of years teaching at a, at a small university. Um, I, th- I, I went to work Accenture technology labs. Labs Accenture is just a big, one of these big old, um, you know, consulting firms it's one of the big four i think uh, they had at the time and this is around the time the time of the the, the first tech bubble uh, between 99 and 2001 i worked for accenture and so i was writing about startup companies because the big firms wanted to see what was happening in at the cutting edge cutting edge with the little companies that may or may not survive and of course many of them didn't some of them were absolutely eliminated in in this sort of like this this event uh, that what we call the tech bubble and its its sub uh, implosion. Nevertheless, having had to write about tech startups, I got interested more and more in some of these futurist endeavors because remember that second category I identified, which is creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation, applied to making the change to inv- invent. The change. So, if you want to predict, as Alan says, you want to predict the the future, invent it. I was talking to inventors, so I got excited about that idea, and it it never went away. And 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 there was this philosophical piece that I always carried with me, and the idea of the development of human systems in is in every everything from companies to how people operate, rate with one another, the incentives. The rule sets in which they operate, their own inward configurations and inward patterns of behavior, all of these things um, to human flourishing or not. And so, I guess that's the best way to summarize it. So I just I just kept reading stuff. I got interested in, you know, the likes of the the big boys. You know, Kurzweil, Kurzweil versus Bill Joy back in around two thousand. Yeah. Um, so, and Peter Diamandis came on the scene with the X Prize, which I thought was fascinating. And and I followed these guys, and they be, they became my heroes. And so, in in learning in learning about learning to internalize some of their methods and practices, um, you know, I, I have to imagine Buckminster Fuller was on your. Oh yes. Yeah. Although he wasn't quite alive when we were doing all this stuff, I think he died in the '80s, maybe. But yeah, yeah, cool. So I really appreciate that. It's good to kind of know where this came out of and how mm-hmm. it's shown up in your life. So you know, with what you do, can you walk us through like some of the challenges you see that we're facing and contextualize them as opportunities? Because that's kind of what I'm hearing you say is like, well, we can use a kind of our innovative entrepreneurial spirit to take on these challenges, to make the world a better place. Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, I think, I think this point, it, it, it strikes me as, as kind of baffling to people. There, there's, there, there's, I think, I think a kind of a, a all pervasive managers mindset out there mm. that understands the world and the people in it, in terms of 
great big central authorities who are responsible who are responsible for responsible for making change. And I resist that notion because to the degree that you centralize things, you're taking you centralize authority or largesse or any of the other things in those say the uh, Manhattan Project, right? Mm -hmm. At the time, at the circumstances of that time in 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 the place in the world world it was probably important for the manhattan project to happen it was a, a concentration of resources and brain power on a specific problem that they found themselves in which is we got to we got to win this war the most illiberal regimes on the planet are going to take over get it i get it it happened there's nothing we can do about that but that became this this sort of dirigisme this kind of idea authority, central power, central largesse, and brain power uh, in bureaucratic settings yeah. became sort of the normal. If we can win the war uh, with, the, with this form of organization, then we can do anything. Which is actually interesting because we, yeah. we fought against the illiberal regimes, which were exemplified by centralization. And we and became we, everything we hated. Exactly. I yeah. said it much better than I could. Yeah. Yeah, and we well, and we we left room for the rest. I mean, entrepreneurship didn't stop, no. but there's was there's definitely a slow accretion of central authority, authority um, relations, uh, unholy alliances between businesses and government. You know, Ike warns of the the military industrial complex and all that good stuff. And it's not to say that innovation doesn't come out of that kind of that kind of config kind of configuring. It does. I mean, there's some amazing stuff going on. on. Uh, in the military industrial complex uh sadly a lot of it is involves killing rather than keeping people you know than than right. save lives but certainly there's interesting technologies that come out of that and a lot of things have been commercialized based on that like gps and stuff mm -hmm. however i i appreciate appreciate uh, ridley who's a, a wonderful author out of, out of the uk who's written a number of books you know his idea uh, of first of ideas having sex right uh and then where where do the, the the conditions in which those ideas mate right is among a million tinkerers millions of tinkerers learning from, from each other trying things at small scales that can be that can be built up to uh amount to a world of human flourishing this is this is really how we use the market as a discovery process. So I'm interested in that discovery process, but more importantly, I'm interesting. I'm interested in applying that discovery process to areas that have heretofore been taken away from a, from that. So for example, education, we're starting okay. to break out of education as a kind of monolithic monopoly in the United States. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, they're 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 not there's more um, a movement into different forms of education where people are trying more experiments you know pods cooperative educational cooperative cooperatives and pods uh, homeschooling private schooling hybrid schooling i mean you name it there's so many experiments going on right now and it could be a cambrian explosion if we play our cards right uh uh lee said for governance you know, we imagine that governance has to be a monopoly and that monopolistic feature uh, is belied by the fact that you have different, for, ex for example, 
even though they're limited in what they can can do, uh, the United States as such, the disunity aspect of the states, meaning that they can have their own jurisdictions and 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 uh, iterate on their legal systems from one state to the next, gives you different dynamics like you know hundreds of thousands of people moving from Cali- from California or hundreds hundreds of thousands of people moving from New York to North Carolina yeah. and everybody moving to Florida these days yeah. you know these kinds of dynamics allow for local localization and governance and so it, this turning the entrepreneurial and creative lens onto things that we think that in order to ha- in, in order to absolutely ensure their existence their existence we must take them out of the entrepreneurial landscape and i absolutely resist that notion but that makes me sound crazy to a lot of people not to me you know that <laughs> <laughs> um you know because I, I imagine as a decentralist like a, a great let's limit federal power of states 50 experiments but I mm-hmm. could imagine that that's not that's not even small enough scale. Like you'd be like, oh, how can we go to the counties, to the towns, to the cities? Um, but let me ask you this: you know, an argument that I've heard Noam Chomsky make is that if you have too much power at the very local level, it's more easily captured. Now I know you could probably say like people can move, cool, they can move out and go to another town or another city, but that's not easy for a lot of people. How how do you keep power from being captured at a very small scale? Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, <clears throat> okay. There's a, there's a lot of ways and what a, what an amazing question, by the way. Um, so the first thing I think is that Chomsky is probably wrong in this regards regard. Okay. okay. Cool. <clears throat> um, now you can have, let's, let's go back to the layer of protocols. You can have certain kinds of provisions from the superordinate layers of layers of let's call the governance stack. Right. So in the United States, we have a governance stack. Uh, Switzerland has a governance stack. What's interesting about Switzerland is that their canton system, the cantons are, are as powerful as the federal government in Switzerland, or at least that has been historically the case. It is easier to capture one jurisdiction and the authority in some jurisdiction than it is to capture those in smaller, smaller jurisdictions. I think Chomsky's wrong about this simply because when you have jurisdictional arbitrage, that is the ability to capture some gain simply by hopping over the border, people will do it. Um, my family and I right now are, consider- are considering out of Austin, maybe even out, out of Texas, not because it's not uh, it's not hot, it's still hot to come live in Austin, but because um, we think that we can find, find certain benefits by moving elsewhere, elsewhere. Austin is getting a little too top heavy, getting a little too captured. So yeah. in, to this, in the sense that um, Austin is getting it, get, it getting that. We see dynamics of people saying, "Okay, I'm out," and the powers that be here, however this capture has occurred, um, are going to at some point have to stop the bleeding. Now, to to be fair to Chomsky, Chomsky you may have a totally different understanding of the dynamic than I do. But if you look at San Francisco, for example, San Francisco is uh, and, and and L.A. both are cities that are in 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 paying their their the corruption corrupting forces of, of these jurisdictions are mounting and and it's they're kind of in a death spiral. Yeah. I would hope that this death spiral would occur um to either of them, but that might might be 
it may reach the point that they have to 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 change course in order in order to their population and, and have people return to that, those jurisdictions. Um, that being said, um, uh, Nassim Taleb, who is a colossal asshole, asshole, nobody denies it, but he has a very good idea in his idea of being anti-fragile, right? Yeah. The idea of anti-fragile is that what your experiment is, and let's say the experiment is just simple capture, okay, as you describe it. And I, when I say capture, I mean an unholy alliance between business and government that creates local fascism, more yeah. or less, okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's uh, there's two different kinds of power. There's the sticks and the carrots. They get together and, and have fascist babies, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's really hard to 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 to, to move systems, but with an anti fragile system, you don't have if uh, like you're starting to see now in the United States, which is the massive collusion between a federal government that implement that implement, you know however many millions of people, and corporate forces that employ however many millions of people, and the kind of the kind the kind of uh, coital bed that is created um when they when they get together and the 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 offspring that slinks from this massive thing is what we might call catastrophic fail failure in anti-fragile systems things are going to go wrong but they will be restricted to the local level so to the extent that san francisco screws itself uh, it doesn't have to happen to phoenix or Dallas or Charlotte or other other jurisdictions that keep keep it together, right? So, depending on, depending on what Chomsky's talking about, I would take issue with that claim. Um, to an extent, it might be easier to capture uh, to, to capture a government locally because one big rich actor actor comes starts dictating terms of things. But at least it's still local, right? Yeah. And it happens at the at the federal level. Yeah. With big corporations and big corporations operating um, based on different different federal pie or the federal trough, um, then you start to see some really really bad dynamics that will be universally catastrophic. So, for example, one more example: um, the monopoly on money and credit that we have by virtue of the Federal Reserve. Um, not to sound too much like a crazy libertarian, but there, but there is a lot of problematic aspects of having that much central authority over how money functions, what's allowed to be used, the price of credit, and how many uh, of these units are in, are in certain. That is too much power for one body to possess. I don't know if we ever discussed this, but I helped lead the transparency effort and audit the Fed. Uh, we did get an audit to the geo. It was really disturbing. I don't necessarily want to go down that path. But yeah, the amount of power that they have is amazing. But the amount of uh, knowledge that the American people, even Congress, has with the Federal Reserve is minimal. How do you how do you break through that? Like, how do you help people understand like the centralizing authorities, big business, big government, are actually contrary to you thriving in your own life? And we want to break up that power and bring it more locally. I've thought long and hard about this, and if I had the answer, um, I can I can say that I I would um, I would have worked worked and 
Like, how do you educate the masses on something like this? Um, I think there is, there's a really strong indie movement on, on YouTube, YouTube and others that is about, um, but you still have to attract those indie, um, that indie talent, I guess you would call it, mm-hmm. has to be able to attract uh, a, a certain number of, of of people who are interested in these matters, and a lot of people just aren't interested in systems. Yeah, no, no. Whether that's because of cognitive limitations, and we have to admit, I know this is a that's a that's a thing, but society is stratified on cognitive lines. This is just the way nature works. Yeah. Some people are smarter than others, and some people just don't understand complicated systems much much less complex ones or the interplay between a complex system and a complex a complex system and a complicated system um and i can i can talk about the difference between complex and complicated if, if you like but i i hope i hope people get it um the the point there is that uh there could be a cognitive ceiling on on um, any kind of education program but also there could be just a a lack of interest interest in it most people are just interested in what kind of dress the Kardashian is wearing today, right? Or what, who said what to whom, or uh, so and so. I mean, even if it's politics, it's it's not meta politics. It's politics. Politics. It's you know we're gonna we're gonna win the next election. Make sure those sobs are out of power, and you know the kind of kind of the the tug of war of of this kind of politics which i find uh counterproductive completely counterproductive so here's how I, how i this is this is the way and 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 this is the way i look at it and it's uh it it's it's imagine um make change without ever having to to educate anyone on anything except the fact that they're benefiting from a change Okay, so people have a status quo bias. They don't like like to change. They get into patterns, and and by change, especially massive, the suggestion of a massive change. They long for security. They don't like to feel fearful. So you gotta say, oh well, if you make this change, you might you might find an interesting set of ramifications from this. Okay, so I'll give you two examples, and then you'll see how education follows. I think. Okay, the first one being. And this is not a perfect example, but it's simple, but it's efficient. Um, uh, it depends on which which layer of this you're talking about. And that's that's Uber. So on about, you know, 2012, it was inconceivable that you would ride with another person where you took cat taxis and they were somehow regulated by the, you know, the taxi medallion industry. And they had all this information, you know, if they mistreated you, you could call a number and so on, right? You were familiar with that. We we all um, remember those days, uh, except you know, two of my kids. Uh, they don't because they're two and seven at this point. But but um, others, you know, folks our age remember when when you never didn't hitch a ride with a person, uh, especially especially in the seventies and eighties because things got scary. Um, on uh, and then and then Bunny through creativity, entrepreneurship, and innovation decides to come up with a matchmaking service w- where idle capital could be used by drivers and could and could be aligned riders. And they created a technology that would facilitate that transaction and awaken that idle capital. I.e., when I'm not using my car, 
someone can pay me to actually use it and they, and they can get with it. Um, this was despite the existence of a cartel, right? Which was the taxi medallion monopolies, which are based in different municipalities. They were able to find, able to find the area, fight like hell. And now we can't imagine life without Uber. That change was subtle and it benefited us to the degree that it was cheaper than taking a cap, cap, cap. And the people were nicer because there wasn't a built-in reputation system, right? You rate them, you tip them and all that good stuff. They have a strong incentive to be nice to to you. A cab driver might be, ah, get out of my cab, right? Um, So long and short of it is that example is an example where you create value with a new system by by operable gray area with such with such rapidity with su- uh what's the word i'm looking for not rapidity or such uh with such speed that constituency group suddenly becomes powerful too powerful for the legacy or incumbent systems to act to change it because now you're talking about taking away everybody's uber yeah you know and uh uh-uh. We like it. Don't do that. We're going to mess you up. Um, and so now it has been done in certain jurisdictions, but for the most part, like or like it was everywhere, all over the world. I would imagine Airbnb would be another example you could use. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so is Bitcoin. Now, uh, Bitcoin has, uh, you know, the promise of Bitcoin, of Bitcoin um, ha- is up for debate. Right. But. If you see Bitcoin as part of a larger evolutionary fitness landscape of competition for mm-hmm. for for legacy currencies that rely on fiat and force versus uh, being able to opt into a system, just just that general thing right there. If I can opt into it and it can, and it confer tremendous value to me by my own lights, not your lights. You know, you yeah. they might if you if you don't find it valuable, you won't buy it. Right. But a lot of people do find it valuable. Will, you know, and will, you know, and will get this sort of education effort that accompanies that. And that's not to say that the Bitcoiners are, uh, have been wildly successful at at top lingler. They haven't, Mm -hmm. but, but is a proof of concept that says, that says, if your system is so great, people will continue to opt into it into the future. Right. And so um, short of requiring that you uh, pay your taxes in and have all these accounting things in your specific monopoly currency, fiat currency, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency space, just all of the shenanigans of these these corrupt companies like FTX, um, the, the, the technological substrate, the tokens themselves are profound, profound and and to the degree they're not, they're going to go away in a, as a Cambrian explosion of new technologies emerge from this space. So when you take an evolution, evolutionary, the long-term evolutionary view of this stuff, you, you, you start to see that uh, decentralization can proceed as massive constituency groups form around the, around the tremendous value of a new set of protocols. Yeah. And that starts small and scale. Got it. I love that. You know, so we talked about education and it's interesting to think about, like, I think the Department of Education was created, the federal 
American Department of Education under Carter 78, 79, somewhere around there. Wow, I think I didn't realize it's that recent. Yeah, it's not too it's not too old. And then the most most recent centralizing iteration of it was Bush and No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing more and more people homeschooling, homeschooling, unschool, and various variations, like like you said, unschooling, homeschooling, democratic free schools, private schools, all kinds of really interesting experiments. But it seems like it's been uh, amplified through COVID. Yeah. Can you talk and a little about like- and, and the penetration of radical social justice ideologies in in into the, into the class? Uh, people are just not having that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's funny because I was going to say it's both like, "Ooh, education is actually not educating our kids," and then there's politics being brought in, and we, we yeah, don't yeah. want that. Let's break out of that. But can you speak a little bit about how crisis, to a certain degree, can help break open centralized system and create the opportunities for more decentralized experimentation to take place, like a COVID? Not well, that we want more COVIDs to happen, but no, no, but but it, the 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 way to see this is, I mean, I think this is great. I mean, there's silver linings in this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm worried. For example, I wrote uh, the book. The book acts uh, based on the the assumption that in ten to twenty years there'll be a massive, massive financial collapse. Bitcoin was created. Um, the Bitcoin white paper came in late 2008, early 2000, early 2000. <clears throat> I think the first Bitcoin was was minted in 2000 nine or 10. And this was a response to the financial crisis, right? So as you say, um, um, you know, and it's usually the politicians that say never let a, excuse me, never let a crisis go to waste. But I think that's also true for innovators too, because um, what you get for lack of a better, lack of a better way of evolutionary bottleneck, right? Of some sort where it's like, we've got to figure out how to survive based on these rather dire, dire circumstances and the innovations that sort of survive and get are going to come out stronger. And so crises as evolutionary bottlenecks and crises as opportunities, both, I think both of those forces at play, what what one perspective of the entrepreneur, the innovator, and one is just from the macro perspective of, of an evolutionary fitness landscape. When you couple those two concepts, thinking of, uh, these innovators as being part of the evolutionary fitness landscape landscape and trying to survive despite the circumstances, whatever they may be, you can get really powerful things come out of it, even unstoppable things. I would, I would, uh, you know, I would, I would say that there are so many different features of um, the cryptocurrency landscape these days, days that are very difficult to stop. Now that the now that the bottle, um, you know they're gonna they're gonna the powers that be are gonna try to regulate it, and they have an incentive to regulate it because they want to keep everybody in the dollar matrix so that the yeah. people so, so that we can hold and we can be taxed without representation. I mean that's exactly what printing money is. It's like okay, we we want to we want to give away free money while we shut down the economy. How do we do that? Oh, we have to print it, print it. So. And then everybody's surprised when we have nation. It's like, come on, guys. This you knew this was coming. I mean, this yeah. is basic economics. But most people don't, as you say earlier, as as you said earlier, yeah. most people don't understand these dynamics. So the 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 long and long and short to button this this conversation up from that very early question is is this is it's rather the same in my view, which is we have to start thinking of these these crises as opportunities to create unstoppable 
forces and protocols of change that bring people into the orbit and they de- they demand powerful constituency groups to continue to work and that can be their power can be represented as political pushback yeah. Yeah. or more importantly it can be um just the evolutionary fissionary fitness cape evolved to the degree at different levels those of the stacks like yeah. there's nothing that the powers can be powers that be can really do people can jurisdiction hop they can use, use um, technological means and cryptographic means to establish relationships with other people. There's all kinds of ways to evade the eye of Sauron, you know, the the power of of Mordor. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're That's doing awesome. it. So uh, we're running short on time, and we talked right. education, we talked monetary policy, crypto, um, talked a little about uh, transportation. There, there are quite a few other industries, and I'd love for you to come back and talk about some of the disruptions you're seeing in these other industries. Because I know you've written like on healthcare as one example. Mm-hmm. So first of all, let me invite you to come back. Thank to you. Talk thank about you. these things. Okay, cool. Be happy. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning that, you know, you've written a couple books. So I'll make sure to include them in the show notes. But you also write prolifically. Um, and I like, where can people find your writing? Um, and what kind of things do you write about that people would be interested after hearing this conversation? Well, and I think, um, especially for this podcast, one of the things that I've become more interested in is 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 what I would call an in 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 earn. So, like, if you take from the use 20, 2016 to twenty nineteen, the beginning of the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, I began to have an inward turn. I started to to really to really reflect on the ass of humanity. Uh, uh, you know, like, what does it mean to be a centered human being? What does it mean to be a moral good human being? And how does, how does that, there's a, there's an old, <clears throat> I like the, um, I don't know if you're into to, to yoga at all. Um, I happen to, to, to be, my fiance is a, is a yogi. She's, she's a teacher of teachers and she's really good. Oh, cool. Oh, very cool. She, yeah. But she, um, she's also very bright and, and told me about the, the yoga sutras of Patanjali. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Yoga Sutras have these uh, these uh, limbs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, the Yamas are uh, uh, five in number, um, which are just one of the limbs, I think. But I, anyway, I get confused confused by that. But <clears throat> interestingly, interestingly, there's um, the the point of it is the idea of moral practice, in in especially in ahimsa, which is not harm, asteya was. Uh, um, there's one that has to do with non-stealing, and then there's uh, I, I think Astea is is integrity. It's like well, let's 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 don't lie, let's don't let's don't steal, let's don't harm each other. Like that's real basic, and we see throughout all of humanity, um, you know, from varying degrees. Uh, Rabbi Rabbi Hillel the Elder, you know, I, I don't three thousand years ago or something. Um, and, you know, with the, the relationship between the, the Talmud, the Talmud, which is asking a bunch of questions about the Torah, you know, about he's like, oh, we can sum up the whole Torah as this um, anything that's anything that's that's hateful to you. Don't do to your neighbor, which is just a variation of the golden rule. We see this rule, over yeah, yeah. and over and over in every yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. And we have yeah. to ask why. And I believe that the evolutionary forces of 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 people colliding with one another in certain circum certain circumstances 
tells us if we want peace, peace, prosperity, and um, and human flourishing, that we have to return to these ancient practices. And I emphasize practice practices because Western morality tends to be one of these things like we pluck it from the the cloud. We just want to say, oh, uh, you know, to be good is to remember. Uh, you, the, you, how would the utilitarians think about this, or how would the Kantians Kantians think? And and they try to apply some kind kind of moral rule in in the moment. It's no, 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 no. That, that's okay. And I'm I'm a Western philosopher by training, so I appreciate that. But I I love the Eastern 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 dedication to practice, just yeah, like yeah. the Catholics and the Greeks practice the virtues. This this renewal of the virtues, this renewal of how am I to dispose through conscious, continuous practice every second of every day. When I, when I interact with you, am I, am I being a truth truth teller? Am I expecting that you'll be a truth teller? Am I acting in integrity with my own values? Do I have that expectation of you without insulting you or harming from you, you even taking from you, right? Because it's in this practice, this conscious, continuous practice daily that we become better human beings. Yeah. And that, in this, in the, the, there, there's a beautiful story of one of the interpreters of the Yoga Sutras, Padanjali, uh, whose name escapes me, but one of these, one of the, one of these Indies that came and settled in Tennessee or something, I think. Anyway, he's got this great story um, uh, about the um, the monks in the meditation forest, and we can close on this because I know you're running out of time. The monks in the monks in the meditation forest practiced ahimsa prayerfully so much and so uh, and so devoutly that the tiger and the cow drank from the same pond. Mm-hmm. Right. And what this means, I mean, whether it actually happened, no one can say. Right. But the myth, the myth is supposed to capture this, the moral, which is we radiate peace, peace practice morality. And in radiating peace, it's infectious. That is more powerful than politics any day of the week. In fact, politics and my and my core belief in admonition to my fellow man is this. Do not, it's it's tempting and it's all around us to let politics become our morale, our morale, but it is not the same. Morality is a is an agentic daily practice, an exercise that we must always must always join in solidarity, solidarity practice so that we radiate as the monks in the meditation forest. If we forget that, then what we're going to get is everybody outsourcing their, missing their morale politics. I love that. And I wish we had another hour because I'd love to unpack that and have a broad conversation. So I don't know if it's the next conversation or the one after that, but I would love to have you back to, to really unpack that in a full length conversation. Cause that, that's uh, really important to me at many different levels, both the politics, politic work that I did, policy work for 20 years, but also just, you know, the work I do as a therapist, coach, and educator is very similar conceptually is what I'm hearing you say. So I'd love to learn awesome. more about that. Um, but before we go, though, I do want to like other places you write for, just give me a couple places that we can include in the show notes too. Sure. Yeah. Um, one Thanks. is um, AIER, um, American Institute for Economic Research. I write about 
some things there. Uh, I have a new book coming out. I hope your listeners will look out for called Underthrow, uh, How Jefferson's Dangerous Idea Can Topple an Empire. Nice. Uh, okay, that's, cool. That'll be out. That'll be out soon. And, and then um, I hope you'll find me on uh, Bezos's little website to, to to buy my books that are already there. If you're interested, <laughs> if they're interested, they can certainly find me there. Um, and only for the show notes, uh, social hyphen evolution. People can contact me through through that website. That is a little nonprofit that I run, and uh, um, it's it's enjoying a, a, resur- a resurgence. You know, COVID you know almost killed my nonprofit, uh, among other things, among other circumstances. But uh, um, but I publish through that nonprofit, and I see my role in in this world in this world of activity, entrepreneurship, and innovation prim- primarily as a, a, pam- a pamphleteer. You know, to to try to bring inspiration to others who have the chops to do it. Um, And um, I have to be an entrepreneurial in the process, in the process about that. So there's a little bit of recursion recursion there. (laughs) I I invite folks to reach out to me who are listening, and I'd be delighted to hear from them. Awesome. And I must say, I've been inspired by your work for a long, long time. So it's uh, great to reconnect. I'm very excited about your new book. We'll definitely have you back on to talk about that one. That sounds really, really cool. Oh, Um, I'd be delighted. Yeah, cool. Great to see you again. Yeah, look forward to a soon-to-be future conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much.